And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today, and I hope everyone enjoyed uh, the last episode where we took a look at two episodes of the classic uh, Tsuburaya Tokusatsu TV show Ultraman, as well as an issue of the Marvel Godzilla comic series. Uh, we got something a little bit different for you tonight. We're going to be taking a look at uh, a more modern film. Also, uh, got a couple of guests on with me uh we're gonna first off the film is 2006 south korean film the host a very well regarded uh giant monster film both in asia as well as here in the states and here to help me talk about it introducing first is host of the beware of monsters <laughs> podcast mr christopher woolett say hello christopher hello thank you for having me oh thank you for being on i know we've been we've been going back and forth online quite a while and i'm glad we finally got a chance to to sit down uh, proverbially speaking and uh, talk monsters a bit yeah i'm very excited actually when i was plugging in all my stuff i was thinking didn't we start talking about this like last november <laughs> yeah that sounds about right <laughs> a little peek behind the podcast curtain here <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I, I'm glad. I said I'm glad we can finally get this uh, get this going. And that other chuckle you heard there uh, is my other guest this evening is noted and prolific science fiction giant monster and action adventure author, Mr. Jeremy Robinson. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, Looking thank, forward to it. Oh, thank you very much for being on. This, this is going to be a lot of fun. This is uh, it's a little bit different than our normal fare here on Earth Destruction Directive, but still very much I think in line with the. Uh, uh, you know, the giant monster motif, just uh, kind of a different approach to it. Uh, guys, we're going to take a, a quick break right now. I'm going to plug in a promo for a show. Uh, if you're really good at duck deductive reasoning, you may be able to figure out what show it's going to be. <laughs> uh, but we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here to talk about the host on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, friend. This is Christopher Willette with a very important safety message for you. Beware of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. International best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important they've commissioned me to start a podcast to get the word out. Please, beware of monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast We'll speak with experts and authors on the subject of monsters. Monsters of literature, of film, of comic books, of video games. Monsters from everywhere. Beware of monsters. You can find more information in your iTunes or Podcatcher searches. Beware of monsters. 
This podcast is in its infancy, but you can join now and watch it grow like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, destroying all around it in its quest to control the world! Friends, beware of monsters each week. Presented by Jeremy Robinson and BewareOfMonsters.com. And we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, now, before we get into it, I, I did really, real brief, want to just uh, ask you guys, uh, how did you guys get into giant monsters? Uh, Christopher, why don't you go first? Give us a little background. <laughs> <laughs> um, Actually, as a child, I thought the whole idea of Godzilla was cool, and then one day I was watching Creature Double Feature, and it was one of the ones with baby Godzilla, and I was like, why does anyone watch this stuff? <laughs> and then I got older, Aww. and I was telling somebody that story, and they're like, oh, you saw the wrong movie. He lent me the other one with <laughs> the baby Godzilla. Yes. And yes. I'm just like, no, no, I'm not ever watching this. And then I started actually hanging out with people like Jeremy and Matt Frank, and they started suggesting better giant monster films. And also, frankly, reading the Nemesis books. Like, I don't know why, because when we started that, I wasn't really watching those and I was so excited about this idea about giant monsters in America and specifically near where I live. And I read that and then I wanted to find them. So I've been pretty excited about them since then. Cool, cool. For, for the record, I would like to say that Son of Godzilla works <laughs> way better than it has any right to work when you actually <laughs> look at the premise and and look at the the budget for the film. That film holds up substantially better than other bigger budgeted films. Uh, but you know, hey, there's there, there's no accounting for taste. That's why there are 31 flavors of ice cream. You know, as 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 my brother would say, because some of you like <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> it was just the wrong place to right. start, especially yes. for me. Because then yeah. when I saw the original Godzilla film. That thing was amazing. That right. had subtext, that had character development, and it was essentially a universal monster film with a giant monster instead of the Wolfman or Dracula, and it yeah. just blew me away. Yeah, see, I, I came into it. That, that was the first uh, Daikaiju film I saw was Godzilla King of the Monsters, so I was kind of primed from the start when I was four years old watching nice. that on my, you know, the tape that my dad had. Uh, with with uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Rodan, and Godzilla vs. Monster Zero on it. That I watched that tape, uh, I think, until it actually fell apart. You know, <laughs> I, For younger listeners, there used to be things called uh, VHS tapes, and yeah. they were magnetic tape you would put into a machine that actually moved it through a head. But, um, how, how about you, Jeremy? Uh, well, I actually started off with Creature Double Feature as well. Uh, Christopher and I are both from New England, where that played uh, on Saturday mornings for a couple hours. And uh, unlike Christopher, I stuck with it. <clears throat> so I watched uh, Godzilla through most of my childhood. Every Saturday morning, I'd be down in the living room with a sketch pad drawing as I watched. Um, and then kind of because of the whole videotape situation and no internet, um, there was a good number of years through high school and college where I didn't really get to see much. 
And then um, they started showing Godzilla again on Sci-Fi Channel, so I busted out the videotapes and started recording them all. Mm. So yeah, I've been a lifelong Godzilla Gamera fan. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, like I said, uh, it's it's funny the the uh, the number of folks that I talk to that were first exposed to Godzilla and Gamera, and even some of the lesser films, Monster from Prehistoric Planet is one that comes up sometimes on those creature double feature. Yeah. Uh, Saturday and Sunday mornings. Growing up where I did in New York, it was always um, it was uh, either on Channel 11, WPIX, or uh, Channel 5, which was WNYW before they were Fox. WNYW, I always remember they'd show like a kung fu movie and yeah. then a, and then a monster movie. It would always yeah. be kung that fu order. Theater. Kung fu theater and then a, a creature feature movie. So yeah. uh, th- th- those were those were good times. Between that and uh, Super Scary Saturdays on TBS with Grandpa. Uh, saw a, <laughs> and uh, Captain Video over on USA saw a lot of them uh, that way. That's how I saw a lot of the Gamera ones was on Captain Video. I guess because mm-hmm. those Sandy Frank ones, or not the Sandy Frank ones, the AIP ones were in the public domain at that point. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, but good to know. Good to we got we got two uh, two solid monster fans here, and uh, so we're taking a look at. We're actually not doing a Japanese film, as I said. We're doing a, a, a Korean film, which is The Host, and The Host was released in 2006. It was directed by Bong Joon-ho, and is actually at the time was the most successful uh, South Korean film ever produced. Extremely popular film. Uh, So let's get right into it. Our story begins with an American military pathologist ordering his Korean assistant to dump 200 bottles of formaldehyde (laughs) down a drain that the assistant warns leads directly into the Han River. We then cut to six years later, when a strange amphibious fish-type monster climbs out of the Han and begins to attack anyone nearby. A simple snack bar owner, Gong Du, and his daughter, Hun Seo, are caught up in the fracas, and during the scramble, Gong Du loses Han Seo's hand, and then sees the creature carry his daughter off back into the river. Along with his father, He Bong, his sister, Nam Jo, a national champion archer, and his brother, Nam Il, Gangdu is taken into quarantine as the government begins to claim that the monster is the host for a mysterious fatal virus. In shock, Gangdu is numbed all around him until he gets a call from Hansio on his cell phone, managing to tell him that she is trapped in a large sewer before the cell phone disconnects. Escaping from the hospital, Gangdu and his family set out to save Hansio, but they will have to avoid the lethal monster the Korean military, and the U.S. military's anti-biological chemical, Agent Yellow. So it is now a race against the clock to find Hyun So, uh, as I said, the very successful film when it was released in 2006 got a limited release here in the States, primarily played on uh, home media, DVD, and, uh, and other type releases, but very well-regarded, highly-reviewed film. What did you guys think? I love this movie. This is one of my favorite movies um, of the giant monster variety or non-giant monster variety. And it's been a few years since I watched it last. And uh, when I watched it again, I just everything about it is awesome. It's it's so like the story is great. It's every scene is is very artistic and well shot. Um, and I love the characters. I, it's strange, but I really think they did a good job with the subtitles. Mm-hmm. Um, like. Obviously, I don't, well, maybe not obviously, I don't speak Korean, (laughs) Um, but I had no trouble, like, watching everything visually while reading the subtitles. There's just just something about them that always flows for me. 
So yeah, I love this movie. Hmm. I thought it was great. It was it was exciting. It gets right into it, and it had real characters and something actually going on. And yeah, this was a great film, and especially it. it I, I would recommend this to people who are like, eh, giant monsters. I don't know. Yeah. I watched it with my wife, and she does not like giant monsters at all, but she <laughs> liked this movie. Yeah, you know, and you know what? what's odd, um, kind of an odd juxtaposition. Earlier this week, uh, my wife was upstairs putting the kids to bed, and I was cleaning up the kitchen, and I was done, and I just, I just took the TV on, and Jaws happened to be on, and that's mm. the film that I see the host compared to quite a lot. Yeah. In fact, my Blu-ray uh, that I've, I've got hold it up to the mic for everyone to see, it says on par with Jaws. So it's the same type of, of, of story. It it's, it's has a, a fantastical element, this uh, strange mutant monster that we actually learn very little about uh, other than its behavior that we clearly we can see. but And we see its origin, but we don't learn very much about the details of it. Uh, but it, the, the strength of it is the characters. You know, we, we really start to emote and feel for Gangdu and Hensio and yeah. uh, even, you know, uh, Namju, the, the sister. You know, mm-hmm. uh, during the whole thing. So I, I had this, uh, I was saying the same boat as you are, Jeremy. It had been a couple of years since I had watched it, sat down to watch it earlier today, and was just, it brought back a lot of memories. It's its just such a, a well-produced film. It's, it's, it's not surprising that it, it was as well-regarded as it is, but it's a very yeah. pleasant uh, feeling that, you know, hey, this is a good monster movie that got some recognition that it deserved. Yeah, and I think that's... Like Jaws, it's because it's it's a monster movie, but the story isn't really about the monster. It's about the people. Yeah. And the, and the monster is kind of what draws uh, the characters to to grow and change and uh, lead us on this weird, really weird experience. Mm-hmm. I, I, one of the other things I, I like about it is that it is very definitely Korean. It's it's not. Yeah, it, it feels like a cultural experience. Yeah, it, even even the things with uh, with Nam Il talking to his friend about the student protests and stuff, and mm-hmm. um, you know the the idea of his, his buddy's uh, uh, he thinks his buddy's successful because he's a salary man working in a big office, you know, but he it, it is right. his buddy's still going to turn him in for the money and all that. So it it's not. Um, I, I compare this very positively with another Korean monster film that was a financial success, which was Yangari 1999, uh, released over here on DVD as Reptilian, which was shot with um, American actors, shot in English, and tried to be an American-style film for the specific purpose of export, whereas here we definitely get a very Korean-style film. I don't. I said yeah. it, it does feel like a cultural experience watching. Yeah, just like little, even the little details, like the the snack they get at, at the park is a fried squid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a roast squid. They just take yeah. out like these like petrified squids and like roast them. And I guess that's like a snack. That looked pretty tasty. I mean, I like squid, you know, I like, I like, uh, like, uh, squid sashimi. So I'm like, mm, well, you know, that could be pretty good. <laughs> Don't steal the legs. No. Yeah. The legs are special. <laughs> That's disrespectful. <laughs> but I think it really does speak to how well developed the story and characters are because it is so foreign and they capture this world so well, yet you can still relate to everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those, uh, you know, the, the human experience is one of those kind of 
uh, universal concepts, you know, no matter what language they're speaking. And and the other thing that kind of struck me with this was, besides it being a very human story, it's it it's presented in a very kind of almost documentarian style in some ways. Now it has some bizarre elements, but in a, in a lot of ways it's striving to be a realistic depiction of things at the same time. When when the creature first comes out of the river and it's just panic and people running in mm. every direction, you know that that's a very realistic sort of way to shoot that. You know, not everyone yeah. is, is, you know, immediately on the uptake as to what's going on. We see the one girl wearing her headphones completely in her own world, not knowing what's going on. And and I, I think we'd, we'd see more of that trend with, uh, my, my mind immediately jumped to Godzilla 2014, the same idea of trying to show a realistic result of if you introduce this right. monstrous element into the real world. Yeah, they don't yeah. even show the whole creature. Like, you see it going between those buildings. You see it jumping around. And it's not until it grabs the little girl with its tail. And even then, you don't really see it. You think it's gone by. The tail comes back. But then it does that beautiful dive into the river. And that's when you finally get to see what it is. And then it puking her up and eating her again <laughs> on the other side of the... <laughs> Yeah, that that whole opening scene for the monsters, it's almost like visually poet poetic. It's mm-hmm. just uh everything about it is is beautiful and well shot and the timing is perfect. And and it's it's one of those scenes where several times uh what happens is so surprising that and and so well done that I just end up laughing, not because it's funny, but because I'm just like this is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, although it it's you know it it's funny you say that because there is there there's moments in this where things there there's humor introduced. Yeah. It's almost like a sort of gallows humor a little bit. Yeah. But it's not it's it, it it's not so, you know, it, it that kind of adds I think to the experience because you're not sure if you're supposed to laugh <laughs> when they're when they're in the shelter and they're yeah, crying but... over Hunsu's uh <laughs> picture. It's like they're they're, you know, and everyone's saying are you because it's, it's it's going on and going on, and you start to laugh to yourself whether you're supposed to or not because it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, but it, you're well, not. You're not. You know. But but they're grieving. Yeah, and I think I think their intention was to was to get you to the point of humor, and then it's like they 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 someone said you know I think only like fifty percent of our audience is going to actually find the humor in this, so let's send the guy in there in a suit and have him slip and fall on the floor. Yeah. And then it, that's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> and he pops right back up and he's very yeah. serious about it. And just the, the way he keeps, like, even, he's a very comical character. The way he, like, keeps whipping out his hand every time he, like, gives an order with the microphone <laughs> is very comical. It's, the way they portray Americans is kind of comical as as well. No, Although I guess there was some, uh, some anti-American sentiment in the movie that was purposeful. I guess the... The dumping of their formaldehyde into the Han River was something that actually happened. Yes, I was reading um, it. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that was hist- before I had read about that. I thought that was a hysterical way to start the movie because the the mortician is like these bottles of formaldehyde are dusty. Dump them out. <laughs> it's like they're not spoiled or anything. It's just that the bottles are dusty. <laughs> I was like, all of this happened because someone didn't dust. Yeah. You gotta have standards. Yeah, well, you know, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. It is. 
there's a lot of truth in that. The, the thing about about that sequence to me is um, uh, we we were talking uh, before we went on air. I'm an engineer, but we do in we do industrial design and stuff. So a lot of times for my job, I'm on industrial sites, including chemical processing sites, mm-hmm. and it's 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 just it just sets my brain on fire to see. Them. It's like you know you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. It's like you can't just dump that down the drain, man. <laughs> That, you know it's wrong, and then and the, and again uh, talk about the the the, com- the gallows type of comedy. As he's pouring it out, and he goes and he turns around, he puts the bottle behind him, and then it's that pan shot to the right, yeah. and it's just bottles and bottles and, and bottles. It's like, oh my god! So <laughs> <laughs> uh, he needs that much formaldehyde. And that that and you let it get that dusty. None of that was yeah. in the storeroom. So they. Maybe because it was a military installation in South Korea where no one is fighting and so no soldiers are dying. So maybe they just have all this formaldehyde sitting around not being used. Maybe it's Korean War uh, surplus, maybe? Maybe. You know, (laughs) after a while, like, because you get the suicide and stuff, and I was wondering, like, was... At one point I wanted to know, were we supposed to think that was just straight formaldehyde, or, like, is there something so. even more diabolical? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, it's the, the bottles that we do see are labeled formaldehyde, and we don't, you know, the we don't get any indication. Well, it, it's weird, because we don't get any indication about it being anything more than that, other than all the smoking and all that. Yeah, I was wondering if formaldehyde steamed. I don't know. I don't. I'd, uh, any any chemists out there who listen to the show, uh, write it in. Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. Let us know. Um, but then I thought it was it was uh, a little odd because during the, uh, the the kind of the last reel when they're protesting against the use of the Agent Yellow, yeah. <laughs> one of the some of the, uh, the 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 flyers plastered on the wall says no Agent Yellow testing. So you know uh, maybe the maybe the implication is that 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 they were testing this stuff and not because they the news says that they successfully deployed it elsewhere in the world but maybe they were testing it here I don't right. know you know no 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 government comes off looking particularly good in this no. film like a like a good monster side. movie you know nobody in charge really knows what they're doing right <laughs> they can make monsters by accident really well. <laughs> And and then lie about there being a virus to to scare people off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's I thought the that American was funny. that comes from. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The the virus. Uh, so the host is like the name of the movie, and it's because this creature is the host for this virus, but it's actually not the host of anything. <laughs> in in a weird sort of way, it's like the host of Huncio, in in its lair. Yeah. It's like, I'm gonna ho- I'm gonna host a tea for you, Huncio, <laughs> with this little boy, and we can eat people and vomit skeletons. Oh man, the vomiting up the bones—that <laughs> is that. I mean that that's just plain creepy. I don't care who you are, yeah. right there, because it starts out he kind of hocks up the skull, and you're like, okay, well, clearly she's not getting any help, and you're like, okay, well, <laughs> she's she, she's in a bad way, and then it just keeps coming and coming <laughs> and coming. It's like, oh my god. Where, where is all that going? You know, where is it coming from? You're not that big a monster. <laughs> and it That's... ends with Gangdu's beer. Yes, the first thing he <laughs> swallowed. Yeah, <laughs> I thought oh. that I thought that was funny. Also, after Gangdu throws the beer and he swallows it, everybody, everyone, immediately starts yeah. chucking things in the river. <laughs> I was like, no wonder why the Han River is such a mess. Yeah, <laughs> you can't just blame the American government and they're from Malbihide. 
litter bugs. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no respect for the natural world. We see how well that works out in other monster movies. Um, the uh, you know the one thing I, I never kind of put two and two together, but uh, um, when right at the bit after they escape from the hospital and they they bribe their way into the uh, the hot zone so to speak, and uh, Gangdu and the crew are all going through and they all just go into the sewers and they start yelling out Huncio's name. Mm. My mind immediately flashed back to Rodan when they're going down into the mine shafts. Tatsuo, are you there? <laughs> it's like, shut up, you fool, you know? <laughs> now, admittedly, they do somewhat better in this film than those guys do in Rodan, but, and that may just be my mind making a connection where there isn't one there, but that, I just thought that was funny. But as a, as a story setup, like I said, it might, from the synopsis, it seems fairly straightforward, but there's a lot of little twists and turns, and you're never quite sure... At least, obviously, the first time you're watching it, you're never really quite sure where this is going to end up. Yeah. It's a very kind of surprising film in a lot of ways because it, it goes in places that are atypical. Yeah, even the ending is it's very unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had mostly forgotten how it ended when I was re-watching it. And it wasn't until maybe a minute or two before we got there where I was like, oh, that's right. Like, that's just a crazy ending. Um, yeah, I was I just... almost confused by it because I just could not believe they went there. Yeah, and that and that you know it. it you're absolutely right, Christopher. That that's that's another like I said, very atypical thing. You don't yeah. get situ you not in. Let me say this: you rarely get situations like that in a monster film, especially a, a an import one. Now, if you want to have a cynical type of ending like that in an American film, that's more that's more chic, you know. Right. <laughs> Whereas, I, it, like I said, the first time I saw it, it I was I mean I was downright floored by it. I'm like I could not believe it, and mm. and it still is is it, it it affects me today watching it. It's I mean I I, I like the the very end of it. I, I like very much. I like the. Uh, you know, we get to see the Gondu being changed for the better because of his experiences. Yeah, they turn it around a little bit. But yeah, but still, it's still shocking. Yep. The other thing I like is everybody gets a shot there at the end at him. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a family affair with them taking on the the monster there at the end. And the thing about that was it didn't feel like okay now your turn. It wasn't like some of the superhero movies where you know every character needs a shot. It seemed very natural, and afterwards, it like felt like yes, they each got to punch the thing. Mm-hmm. And it, and each one made sense, you know. Yes. Each one, what what how they were how they were mm-hmm. uh, fighting made sense in it. It wasn't like, uh, you know, just out of the blue somehow somebody's a you know a third degree black belt or something like that. Everything <laughs> everything was established and and made sense with the characterization that we had got for them. Well, that's one of the things that I think shows the complete artistic integrity of this film is that so much of it, when you think of it afterwards, is like, yes, that's exactly what should have happened. But none of it at the time ever feels like they're shoehorning everything in. It just seems like, yeah, naturally, that's what would happen next. Yeah, it's very effortless. There, there's, yes. there's a lot, go- like I said, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of characters in different locations moving in different directions. But it feels very effortless. I mean, this film is... Uh, a hair shy of two hours, and it absolutely flies by. Yeah. It's one of those ones where you look at like, oh wow, it's been an hour already, you know? That because that, you just get get sucked into it, and it just moves and moves and moves. Even when it it slows down, there's still stuff happening that's moving everything forward. 
You know, I, I think one of the a, a personal complaint of mine that we get now, and we've seen this, I'd say probably over the last decade or so, especially in American films, is because the number of screens at your local uh, movie theater has multiplied. You know, the now you can make that movie two and a half hours long. You know, you can make it two hours and 45 minutes long because you're not limited by the number of screens for how many showings a day you can have for it. So the marginal length and the marginal cost of the film is relatively low once you get to that point. So now you're getting things that are long just for the sake of being long. Right. And it's like, you know, well, you know, maybe that should have ended up on the cutting room floor. We really don't need that or save that for the DVD. Not that's just not the case here. Everything here yeah. works and fits and nothing feels like filler. Even the little uh like I said the little side subplots like yeah. uh Namil going and and trying to lo- you know use the uh the cell phone tracker to find Hans Yu. That that has a whole little subplot to it, but it's organic and it makes sense and it's it it would be it would be uh, the film would be lesser off if it didn't have it in it, right? Even some of the scenes that don't feature the main characters, uh, like there's the two two workers. They're what do they find like a dollar bill? Yep. By by the side of the river, and then they have their encounter with the creature, and that whole scene is just perfect, and it ends up being hysterical when it it swings into view, and then kind of just like careens on top of their vehicle yeah <laughs> yeah it's just it, it was like horrific but then hysterical all at the same time yeah and it just it adds to the creature's personality which is totally freakish but also a little bit funny because it's so clumsy yeah it's uh it's very much uh it's one of those things you hear it all the time it's like well a hippopotamus may look awkward but they're right. very agile in water and it's like okay get out it's like I don't, then why is he on land but no here again he's, he's amphibious and very few amphibians look graceful on land right i uh, now for the monster himself almost completely realized with cg there are some physical effects where it interacts uh very closely uh with with some of the actors uh as far as a, a cg monster i i think he's very well realized um, one of the things you get sometimes with uh, the, these lower-budgeted CG films is they don't look consistent from uh, from right. scene to scene. Sizes changes, details changes. Again, the previously mentioned Yangari 99 is notorious for that. But I think the monster here comes across very well and really, again, despite having no real seemingly intelligence, as a great presence and is a really a, a, a very fully realized monster. Definitely. Yeah, the only time I saw any kind of shaky CGI was when it was on fire. Yeah, um, fire stuff. It, yeah, it, it still worked. It was forgivable. I definitely think if they had more money, they could have made it a bit more photorealistic. Like, I never, I never doubted it was a CG creature, but they really put their time and effort in where it mattered. Like, it worked for the story. It moved correctly. Its design was consistent. And and it was neat looking because so often, I think, when they make monsters, they're just like, it's mutant and weird looking. It always feels like you just stuck the eyes somewhere different for the sake of doing it. Where this one, like, seemed plausible. I guess it was um, inspired by an actual thing they pulled out of the river in the years following the 
the dumping of the actual formaldehyde. Oh, okay. I guess there was there was some kind of like weird two-tailed S-shaped fish, and that pretty well describes this thing, yeah. but with limbs and uh, a lot more girth. Yeah, <laughs> and a bigger appetite as well. No, I, I I agree. I think um, you know, and, and part of it also is you look at the the time frame. You know, this was uh, 2006. I mean, that's it doesn't it doesn't sound like it, but that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Mm. Oh my God. Uh. <laughs> I was do, I was doing a show the other night, and uh, we were talking about a film that came out in 1984, and we were like 32 years ago. It's like no, oh, no. Man. <laughs> I refuse to accept it, but uh, and and also being um, uh, you know being a, a Korean film, so by by its nature being lower budgeted than what we would get here in in uh, in the states. But and 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 personally, that's always kind of the the dig against computer generated monsters that I have is that because it's added in post, you never get the sense of mass that you get with a right. a stop motion creature or a guy in a suit or a go motion or however you want to do it where it's practical that has uh, mass and depth to it whereas the cg you really got to work to to show that and really only kind of the the best of the best do it but as far as like i said i, I still think he's he's realized really well um and uh, and he gets gets some great moments so we talked about the vomiting of the bones and yeah. uh then when um right or after that when Huncio tries to make her escape by running up its back, mm. almost surreal that that scene. As we, you know, we um, we don't, as the audience, don't have all the information for what we're seeing initially. It only until the camera pulls back and our, you know, we we get more of the information, the visual information, and we get right. that aha moment going off yeah. in the back of our brain. Yeah, and when it when it put her down on the ground and she just kind of stood there. And it got really uncomfortable how long she was standing there. I felt like, yes. um, oh, I can't remember that, Christopher will remember, in Signs, Christopher, when he's in the closet and he's watching the kids in Mexico, and he's like, move children, move children, vominos. <laughs> I felt like, Hanzio, vominos, in the <laughs> hole, what are you doing? Let's... Yeah, it just hangs there for so long, because you know something's going to happen. Well, it's Hitchcock, like the... Way you get suspense is you tell somebody that something's going to happen and then make them wait for it. Yeah. <laughs> and Hitchcock also say you show them the banana peel, then you show it to them two more times before you do something with it. I think he's <laughs> it's something along those lines. One of his one of his uh, theories. Um, but uh, yeah, that that that's a uh, it's it's kind of nerve wracking. And then of course it's you know we the 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 payoff for it is is. Um, it also leaves you in suspense. So that's even more yeah. nerve-wracking. It's like, yeah. come on, man! And, yeah. Damn you, movie! You know? <laughs> and they did, they did a great job endearing the audience to Huncio in a very short amount of time. Just yes. by kind of showing her with her family and having a good time and being like a cute kid, she very quickly becomes like someone you root for. Um, yeah. And then becomes almost one of the main heroes of the story. Mm -hmm, absolutely, yeah. Now, um, I might have just missed it, but at the beginning, I was thinking she was a little sister. And it wasn't until after she was gone that they're, like, talking about him being a rotten father and the brother being all mad. And I'm like, oh, whoa. Like, it really hit me. This wasn't just he lost his sister, he lost his daughter. Right. 
I think it's conf- a little, maybe a little confusing because um, Gang Du has the the funky hair, and he he doesn't look old enough. No. Yeah. I think because of the hair, he doesn't look old enough to have a thirteen year old daughter. I think when they show the ages on the wanted poster, I think he's like thirty six. So he was pretty, you know, relatively young when she was born, and as we find out from uh, from the dad, that the mom just ran off. Right. Which is again a- a- atypical. It's not not the type. You know, you know the the cliche is the right. deadbeat dad who runs off, not the mom. Right. You know, um, and and uh, Christopher, the the I can't, I, they it's a little subtle because they talk about how um, when when uh, Huncio comes comes up. And he says, oh, how did it go? How'd your uncle do? And he goes, well, I can't believe I was the only kid whose uncle came to Parents' Day. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it is something if you're not, if, if you miss that line, you'll, you'll miss the relationship. Because, and then he even gives her a beer. And, I, her, and her response to that is great, because that's how a 12-year-old girl would respond. <laughs> to being handed a beer, I would hope. So... <laughs> I like... I really... Go ahead. I, I really liked it because I think it does show like like just the whole crying scene and then the brother starts beating on him that <laughs> you saw him like he was trying for his daughter. There was a giant monster chasing him. Like, I don't think anybody blames him for grabbing the wrong hand and saving some other girl. But I think there you find out there's already this preconceived notion that he's a crappy dad. Right. And he cannot handle this, and now she's in mortal danger because he's always been a crappy dad, which is juxtaposed against the fact that, yeah, mom ran out, and he's still doing his best to take care of her, and he is trying, and then the entire narcoleptic rooster speech, yeah. and it, <laughs> which is awesome, and then it's emotional. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That's a, it's a good point because that's, um, you know, it's it's what what's more dishonorable to be bad at your job or to skip out on it, you know. <laughs> right. And, and he wasn't even that bad because while everyone else was running away, he was one of two people to actually try and fight the creature. Right. So he was he was doing a you know he was trying. And the other guy different. even just joins in because he sees the example. Yeah, they're they're it, it's yeah because he because Gangdu runs straight up and and the guy's wife is grabbing him and he's saying no there's I got to go help these people so the two of them do it and that's the the uh, army sergeant which yeah. I because because at first it's like why is there an American guy there and why <laughs> does he have a Korean wife and then it's like oh he's a, okay he's in the army that makes that that's one of those things that you know um, uh, anyone of a certain age they understand that concept you know right. uh, my. Um, uh, my my wife has uh, several um, Korean and, and Filipino friends, and uh, you know she looks at their parents, and it's all a a white guy, and an Asian mom. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah, they met during the war. It's like ah yeah. I said the the real and and um, you talk about the kind of the, the human reactions and stuff. One of my favorite moments in this that starts out. It starts out very low-key just as a, a simple human moment, but then takes a very surreal turn, is after they are uh, in the hot zone and they break into the other uh, snack bar and they all and uh, they make the instant noodles and they're just sitting there waiting for their noodles to be done <laughs> and they all start eating. 
and there's no dialogue, but it's a very human moment. You've been running around all day trying to find the girl. You've been going in and out of sewers, you know, dodging the patrols and all that. And you're you're just tired and you're eating. And then we get, you know, um, um, Gondu's hallucination, dream, whatever it is, with uh, with Hunseyo being back and no one saying a word, and so she's just back. So it gets it goes from being this very unrelatable kind of, uh, like I said, just, just low-key human scene to being this kind of surreal one that, again, really kind of drives home the, the, the pathos of the piece. Right. I actually took that whole scene to be Huncio's fantasy. Ah, that, that probably she, makes more she sense. She was yeah. picturing them coming back after looking for her all day, and then, because she was so hungry, and she was talking about food, I think immediately following that, um, so I think she was the one imagining all the food that she got to eat. Yeah, and that works, yeah. And then her conversations with Seiju, the, the little kid, later. Yeah. And uh, I did like that. It's like, oh, wow, you work at a food cart? You must eat instant noodles every day. <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting. Like, he's in a sewer, and there's a monster out there, and what he's thinking is, wow, this girl's awesome. She's got such a much better life than me, and... The- they're still stuck in the same sewer with the monster. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I've got uh, I've I've got a uh, an eight year old niece, a seven year old son, a five year old son, a three year old daughter. So, you, and and anybody out there, you've got kids that age, you know that what's going on around them may or may not at any moment <laughs> impact what they're thinking about. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Especially when there's food potentially involved. Right. <laughs> Well, they've also built him up like he's lived in places like this all his life. Yes. Yeah. And those were actually the sewers around the Han River. So they, they shot on location <laughs> that's in the, the actual sewers. That's the glamorous side of filmmaking right yeah. there. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, we're shooting on location. Are we going to Seoul? Nope. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the one other uh, note I had here is that I really liked the musical score, mm. but again, keeping with kind of the theme, very atypical for a film of this type. It's very modern. Um, it's it's got a lot of strings and that kind of stuff in it. It's very moody. It's not bombastic or what you'd you know normally you kind of expect. Even even with a uh, you know a. Uh, a more serious monster film, uh, but I, I really liked it. it was, it's very memorable in its, um, and it, like I said, it, in its its atypicality. Yeah, definitely. It, now that you say that, I kind of want to get it. I don't know. If it's <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know if it's available. These, uh, these yeah. Asian films, they tend to make them available, but usually it, they're it only must in Japan. be somewhere. Well, that's one of the great things about there being no region lock on a CD. <laughs> you know, you you can buy a Japanese CD and then go look up the track listing and put a little sheet right. in the end in the liner notes. You know, <laughs> is someone searching for it? I think that's Christopher searching. You looking it up oh, there? Yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. <laughs> On Two True Freaks, we typically say, "Well, somebody vamp while I go look up if that is available." <laughs> oh, but the soundtrack is—it's. Like everything else, every single piece is in total service to the plotline, which is, once again, why it works so well, 
but you kind of, it doesn't really stick out because it's pointing back to what's going on the whole time. Right. The, the Maison Sen is very strong. My, uh, my, my uh, Clemson University film uh, professor would be very proud of me uh, for bringing <laughs> up Maison Sen. But you're right, everything kind of works together. And it not from a technical standpoint, no one element kind of draws attention to itself, but it all works together very nicely. It all comes together for the final product, which to me is always the, the best sign. I mean, you know, um, there, there's a lot of really lousy movies with great scores. That's true. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and you and you say that it's like, wow. I mean, it's like the score was great. It's like, yeah, the movie kind of sucked, but you know, the music was really good. It's like, or or you say it's like, wow, that that movie made no sense, but wasn't it beautifully shot? Yeah, you know, or things like that. <laughs> and and it's like again, you know, if if you're taking a cinematography class, that's good. But if I paid my money to watch a movie, I'd rather all of it work together, and that and that's what we get. <laughs> yeah. it, it, the I, I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but. I think this movie has had um, some legs, you know, no pun intended, despite its limited kind of wide release here in the U.S., because I think of the influence it's had on both independent and major release monster films. I, I mentioned Godzilla 2014. I think it had clear some clear influences there. But if you take Gareth Edwards' earlier film Monsters, monsters yeah. I think Monsters has a, you know, in certain elements... A lot of kind of you can see you can see kind of the through lines with the depiction right. of you know the, the the reality of the situation the way that uh, the realistic responses uh, you know the way that the the government and the military are handled so yeah. I, th I think there's some definite um, you know the, the genre of monsters going all the way back even to um, you know the Universal era was everything kind of fed on itself Think the films are feeding off the pulps which were feeding off of uh, you know, things happening in the real world and, and so forth. So it's always been kind of an organic uh, industry insofar as, you know, there's the difference between a ripoff and an homage is the size of your budget. So, <laughs> so I, yeah, so, I mean, do you guys think, does that make sense what I'm saying? That, the, that even though this didn't have a whole lot of wide release, it was influ it was pretty influential? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I now write kaiju novels, and I'm definitely influenced by this movie. It's a... Uh... It's one of the best examples of, of a monster movie with very, very human characters that are moving. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, hard to find. So this is definitely one of the best examples of that. And I'll, and I'll take a moment to put over those uh, kaiju novels because uh, they're awesome. So just get <laughs> that out there. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, if, if, we, if we ever get that live-action Project Nemesis, you know, this wouldn't be a bad film to kind of uh, ape if you go along, you know? Yeah. If you're going to rip so. something off, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, all the people who made this one have apparently been axed from the plans for The Host 2, so they're available. <laughs> ah. Who is making The Host 2? I... I can't get back in because I had the free trial for Internet Movie Database Professional oh. there. But um, there, there were. I was going through and looking at it, and there, it's, I guess, in development actively. But yeah. it's a different director, and there's only one star attached, and he's not any of these people. So it's probably so, not going to be a good movie. No. Well, well it seems it, it on the surface be, it does seem unlikely, but you never know. I know right. that, that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, if it was the same people and returning to this story, you could have an idea of what it was going to be like. But 
it could be a good film. It could be terrible. We just have no idea. I mean, we haven't. Has there really been that much progress? Because I'm looking at, at Wikipedia, and they said they haven't been. You know that that there we haven't had any real news since like 2013. <laughs> and, and in fact, there was uh, a talk a while back of there being a U.S. version of it. We got that kind of little string right. of uh, of the Hollywood studios remaking. Uh, Asian films like we got with um, The Grudge and uh, Ring right. and, um, and there's a few other of the, those J-horror movies. Uh, but again, that one kind of uh, kind of fell by the wayside and they, nothing ever really came of it, probably for the best. Because to be honest, I can see I can see a Hollywood studio really, really screwing oh, this yeah. up. They butcher it. You can't you can't remake this and do it better. There's there's no way. I mean, and there's very little reason to do it. Like, it's all here, it's all accessible. I can see remaking a movie where the cultural influences are so much you can't identify. But you can. Yeah, and I, and I can even see doing, like, the, the two American Godzillas, okay? Taking an, as a beloved property and going in a different direction with it, successful or not successful, you know, but trying something new. And, you know, mm -hmm. and, and by trying something new, at least in 1997, that means the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just not as good. But um, again, Which is I, technically, I guess, the inspiration for Godzilla. So Yeah, it all, like I said, everything is uh, everything's organic. You know, I had, a, um, I had a conversation with a listener a while back talking about the... Um, uh, uh, um, the Mysterians versus the Jerry Conway's the Jerry Conway the Jerry Anderson series the Mysterons from the UK and it's like well when was the Mysterians released in the United Kingdom that he could have been exposed and you know so it's you never it, it's it's right. you need to be like a forensic nerd that needs to be like an area <laughs> you know to, who ripped who off you know <laughs> right and I I think usually what happens is some people either watch something and forget about it. It just becomes part of your creative, like, background noise, you know? And so stuff sneaks in, and, and plots are sometimes similar. I don't think many people do it on purpose. Maybe, like, the really cheap sci-fi movies, those people are like, all right, what can we remake now? Um, but, <laughs> like you know, the transmorphers. I was going to say, the, yeah, the, exactly. yeah, the asylum, yeah. Yeah. Those people, their job is to rip stuff off. But for the <laughs> most part, people aren't trying to copy something. They're just, uh, sometimes it sneaks into your brain. Yeah, I'm reminded of the um, the uh, Star Trek episode Arena, which, uh, you know, the, was, was essentially, was written by Gene Kuhn, except that Frederick Brown had already kind of came up with that story. <laughs> and 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 uh, and so they're like, wait a minute. So they went back and they gave him credit for kind of after the fact because he must uh, have read it at some point. Yeah, I, it was either it was either Arena or there's a very similar episode of The Outer Limits called Fun and Games, which stars Toho Studios alum Nick Adams <laughs> in a very similar role. Where and that one it's a, it's it's an Earth couple and then a, a reptilian couple that are put on a planet to fight to see who which planet uh, you know which civilization survive. Um, but yeah, like you said, I don't think anybody, yeah, you know, you, you get the, uh, like I said, the difference between an, uh, 
an homage and a ripoff. It used to the the, the line used to be ten million dollars. If your film costs more than that, it was an homage. Less than that, it was a ripoff. That line has moved north, as uh, <laughs> thanks to inflation and other other outside factors. Um, that that was from uh, there used to be a great. It's still kicking around, but it's not updated anymore. Um, StompTokyo.com was a, uh, as the name implies, a, a monster like review site, but they covered all sorts of genres of film. And then one of their sub-sites was called The Bad Movie Report. And the guy who wrote The Bad Movie Report, his handle was Dr. Freaks. Well, Dr. Freaks had written and starred in a bad movie called Forever Evil, which was immediately dubbed a ripoff of The Evil Dead. And he said the Uh, reason was because our budget was less than $10 million. If we had raised a bit more money, we could have been an Evil Dead homage. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I do think, like... I don't know. We we aren't. Nobody creates in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Everybody is creating from what they've seen before. And it's just like, it depends how much of yourself you're putting into it. It's like, I mean, since Jeremy's here, you read the Project Nemesis books. You know there's a love for Godzilla there. Right. Nemesis is not Godzilla, but that's where giant monsters come from and that's the spark of the imagination and there's also i think in the more homage and love sort of art there's not an attempt to hide it mm-hmm. because the ripoffs are usually trying to be like oh no no i'm not technically that other movie <laughs> <laughs> It's like, y'all see, in that film, they had, you know, it's in that film, the shark was 25 foot long, and in our film, our shark is 30 foot long, so clearly our film is a wholly original product. <laughs> Please don't sue us. Like, you, yeah. the, the suit should be thrown out on its merit alone, Your Honor. But, uh, well, you know, it's, uh, and um, again, mentioning uh, uh, Nemesis, and, and I did get some kind of, um, a little bit of Nemesis flashbacks watching this, just not not so much again in the, in the details because clearly Nemesis is is her own thing, but kind of in the way that the, the monster in this moved, you know, right. that very yes. fluid, smooth movement reminded yes. me of of Nemesis a bit, and um, you know, like I said, that that's that's mostly just fanboy, uh, you know, mental links going on there, but uh, it was it was it just it struck me as ironic if I if I was watching this to cover it by myself, <laughs> it would not have been as funny. But but watching it to cover it with you guys and thinking of Nemesis is like hey yeah yeah it's to- and see I would have never said that um, consciously or had made that choice but it's definitely possible that you know when I was picturing her moving that this kind of image came to mind because I had liked this movie so much yeah well it's one of those things again that you have the advantage of essentially an unlimited an unlimited visual effects budget right. you know yeah. i mean it and 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 to you know I'll, I'll give a for instance in the legendary godzilla in godzilla 2014 one of the original complaints was well why are his feet so small <laughs> and and you said well if you looked at dinosaurs or if you want to say it like steven spielberg dinosaurs <laughs> that they didn't have the gigantic monster feet necessarily, especially yeah. the upright ones, and that the reason why Godzilla and uh, Baragon and all these other guys have these giant feet is because the actor's foot has to yeah, fit in it. And, feet inside of them. Right. So it's like okay, so the legendary Godzilla has no human feet, thus we don't we're not limited by that. We can make his feet look however we want. 
you know, and, and in, our, in that case, they chose to make his feet look smaller to look more reptilian or whatever. Um, you know, you can, when you're not limited by having a guy actually physically be able to move, you right. know, Haruko Nakajima actually being able to move in 200 pounds of latex, you know, down the model <laughs> city in, in 1954, Godzilla might have moved a little differently. He might have moved more fluidly, but because he lumbered, that became the kind of visual vocabulary. And right. so when a monster moves in a different way, it stands out. It's like, hey, that guy, he's really moving, you know, <laughs> whether it's done through suitmation, whether it's done through CG or however, you yeah. know, another uh, um, another good example of that is in Godzilla Final Wars. When Rodan swoops down and is flying between the buildings in Manhattan, that's done primarily with CG, but there's some puppet work in there, too. And just because it looks different, it immediately stands out. It's like, hey, wow, he's really moving, you know. Yeah. So. And you can tell we didn't design Nemesis to uh, be a rubber suit. <laughs> now that <laughs> now that you said it, I was picturing someone trying to get their legs to match hers. It's just not going to happen. Well, that you know, that's <laughs> why um, I don't I don't know if uh, uh, you guys are Harryhausen fans, but you know the Cyclops yeah. in the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad yeah. has cloven legs as goat legs, specifically so he could not be accused of it being a man in a suit. Ah, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my, my dad my dad was a huge... My dad's favorite movie is King Kong. So my dad's a huge Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen fan. So I grew up watching, you know, besides Godzilla movies and Universal Monsters, watching the Harryhausen films. Clash of the Titans was a big one for me. Yeah, I, yes. that was the only one that came out... Because I was born in 1980. So that one was the only... I remember that as a little kid. I remember, I remember my brother having the toys and stuff. Yeah. Like specifically the little kids Calibos toy and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what I remember, you know, I remember watching the Sinbad movies when I was like five, mm. you know, on Saturday afternoons. My dad's, oh, we're going to watch Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Jason the Argonauts or It Came From Beneath the Sea, you know. So, uh, and, 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 you know, Christopher, you were saying you don't create in a vacuum. I don't think we make our fandoms in a vacuum either. You know, it, it's right. all of all the things that we are exposed to that we end up liking you know, they, they shape our influences and our likes and dislikes and nothing. It's it, it's rarely just one thing, you know. It's, it's, it's a combination of things. It's comics and monsters and wrestling and, yeah. you know, the G.I. Joe and whatever. You know, it all, <laughs> it's all getting mashed together in your brain. <laughs> Sounds like my childhood. Yeah, yeah. And they were awesome, weren't they? The 80s? Yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kids today don't know how well they have it with all their 80s revival toys. Yes, I make my kids watch the old 80s cartoons, and they actually like them, so that's good. Mine would, uh, my my oldest especially, he is champing at the bit to watch the original Transformers, the movie. Uh, and I won't, oh, let, I, I won't let him watch it yet for two reasons. One, because his his younger brother and sister would not be able to watch it, and that would just cause a nuclear meltdown, right. especially his brother, because he's, he's, a, he's a middle child, he's a little brother, and he's five. So he's, mm. he can get a little temperamental. Um, but beyond that, I said, you can't watch Transformers the movie until you watch some of the original cartoon, because you don't <laughs> know. The first half doesn't make any sense without right. that, you know? So, <laughs> you don't have the emotional build-up to <laughs> shoot everybody in the head. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that opening day. Wow. Like in the theaters and I felt so smug coming out with my mommy <laughs> because there was some, you know, valley girl, well, in New Hampshire, but some <laughs> valley girl walking by the poster going, 
it's rated PG. Why would be? Why would it be PG? It's not like they swear or anything. <laughs> I'm so smug and cool. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> I just saw a movie that said a cuss word. It was a cartoon. <laughs> well, you see, the the thing is, when I was right around my seventh, right before my seventh birthday, and I've told this story on on the vault before, is my dad took my brother and I, my brother's two years older than me, we went to a double, a sneak preview double feature. The first movie was Predator. Nice. And the second movie was RoboCop. Nice. That, sh- I mean, I had the one sheet for RoboCop on my door for a, for like five, six years after that. Only reason yep. it came down was the Dark Man one sheet replaced it. <laughs> so it's like watching Predator and RoboCop when I was seven years old. That shaped so much of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I saw same with my family. Like, I don't know if, if parents were just like, it's PG, it's fine. Like, but let's go see Jaws. That's no problem yeah. for an eight-year-old, right? <laughs> <clears throat> so yeah, I, I got to see all of the... the the horrible sci-fi movies that little kids should not see. The other one we we I, we also went to see Aliens in the theater. Yeah, and again I was like six, and I had yep. not seen Aliens, so I had no context. It was just yes. blowing blowing bugs up for two hours. Yeah, I saw <laughs> Aliens first too. Yeah, that's yeah, a kid, and I still love you. Probably might see some some hints of a xenomorph in Nemesis's design. Mm. <laughs> Is this a stand-up fight or is this a bug hunt? The <laughs> bug hunt. But anyway. <laughs> I do actually wonder after, like, interviewing so many creatives who do, like, great art in the monster realms, if I'm doing my children a disservice by not disturbing their brains by showing them stuff that is way too old and too scary for them. Because that's yeah. the story from everybody. Yep. Like... I was five, and I should not have watched that, and I won't let my kids do it, but... <laughs> it shapes you. It, it definitely shapes the way you think and, and the way you see the world. And, yeah. like, I can't not stand at the ocean, look down into the water, and think, something down there is going to eat me if I go in. Yeah. Like, I can't do it. And I'll still go in, eventually. <laughs> You just I'll, don't go out real far. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be nervous the whole time. And it's even worse if I wear like a face mask so I can see underwater. Because then, <laughs> then I get all the underwater scenes in my head with something's coming at me with sharp teeth. And yeah. that's, you know, so going into the ocean for me is hugely terrifying, but also very inspirational for the kind of things that I write. And that's all because of what I watched as a kid. You see, I, I, I should send you a copy of the movie Blood Beach. <laughs> where the the, the 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 monster is actually the beach itself so you can't go in oh, the wow. water or on the beach <laughs> the, the, in fact here I'll I'll, uh, I'll throw the the poster in the in the chat here real quick because it's hilarious and <laughs> but uh, yeah you know it's it's funny because um, you know like uh, I'll get a uh, I'll get a box of stuff from HLJ in Japan which is a big uh, model and toy company set up by uh, uh, an American expat in Japan, which is why I like them, because English is their first language. Uh. <laughs> and um, and I'll get a box of vinyl Ultramans and Ultramonsters and stuff, and, and I can see it in my son's eyes, the gleam that he wants to learn about this stuff yeah, so bad, you know? Yeah. And he's like, and he's like, and we, and we'll go... You know, outside and and uh, we'll play monsters and I'll chase him around and he'll tell me which ultra monster I get to be. Daddy, you be Bemular because he's got short arms. It's like okay. Yeah. 
That way you can't grab me. It's like, all right, all right. <laughs> He's stacking the deck. To oh, stack. totally. So, is, yeah, he totally stacks the deck. So it's like when we play uh, play superheroes, and inevitably I, I get to be Iron Man, naturally. And then he's uh, he, he grabs Doctor Doom and the Silver Surfer's uh, uh, surfboard. I'm like, that's what? not fair. <laughs> it's not fair at all, man. What the heck? <laughs> I often am told to be the Joker while my seven year old is Supergirl. <laughs> so yeah, I yeah. you're running pounding me down. Yes, <laughs> I mean at least theoretically, I could put it to the Joker to track down some kryptonite. You know, you <laughs> you you could be like the Riddler. You know, I always wondered yeah. that. It's like. It, in Crisis on Infinite Earths, they're going to fight the big energy wave. They bring the Penguin and the Riddler. It's like, <laughs> no offense to either of those characters who I have great affection for, but what are they really going to do against an entropy wave? Honestly. <laughs> honestly. Is the Riddler going to stump it into submission? It. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> the energy wave can't decipher my clues. <laughs> Anywho, we're, I think, uh, you know, uh, as, as a, we're not a DC Comics podcast, despite being on the Two True Freaks Network, where <laughs> it's almost a requirement. Uh, but, um, yeah, so uh, I'd, uh, you guys have uh, any any uh, last thoughts about the host? Can, are, are we trying not, because I think we talked around it, are we trying not to spoil the ending? You know what? Spoilers on. Go ahead. <laughs> If y'all don't want, if you don't want to hear the ending, stop now. Just yell Huncio many times really fast, <laughs> and then you'll feel like you're in the movie, and we can talk about it. <laughs> Huncio. Well, when she came out, like, so the monster spits her out, and it was just such an amazing scene because obviously she has spent her entire time willing to sacrifice herself for this boy getting more and more disgusting and dirty and caked on. And she comes out and it's, I mean, it's weirdly a birth. It is a rebirth. Here she comes clean and beautiful and dead. Yeah. Like all the symbol. That was the thing. Not only, just the general hope this whole movie is about getting this girl back and all the symbolism of birth and all the heroism she showed, like everything was saying she should be alive. Mm -hmm. And it just was like a gut punch. Yeah. And, and, and the first time I watched it, I kept expecting that the soap opera wake up scene, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and, and they keep, <laughs> they keep cutting back to her. In and not when Namju is holding her or Nam Il has her, they keep cutting back to her because they keep they're toying with our expectations that they'll never kill her off. Not after they spent the whole movie chasing after her, they won't kill the girl off. And it's like, damn it, they did it. And it and, and even that cutting it seems to be like not just playing with our expectation; it's showing us them. They can't believe she's dead. Right. Yeah. And and after they had, like you said earlier, the big fallout of grief over her death, and then this, they get the hope from the phone call, and all that drives all three of them, and and the dad as well before he gets turned into uh, you know uh, concrete candy. But uh, you know, so so it, it yeah, it, like I said, I kept expecting her just to to gasp and wake up, and it's and it and it never comes, and it really is, it's one of those ones that. 
um, especially if you're a parent, it's it's the gut punch, like you said, Christopher. Mm-hmm. It really is, and it it's it's it holds its power because of it, because I think it's unexpected. Yeah, yeah. The movie would lose a good portion of its strength if she was not dead at the end. And I don't because think her, I her death, it, but it has such an everything up. Yeah, and then having Seiju there and having the relationship at the end between Gangdu and Seiju. Yeah. You know, it's uh, her, you know, uh, Huncio's sacrifice let him, you know, uh, helped, gave Seiju a chance at life and gave Gangdu a chance, again, another chance to be a dad. Right. You know, I feel like maybe it would have been nice to see a little more of Seiju early on. Yeah. Like, you know what? We do see him early on. He's the kid who's, like, waggling his hand at their food cart, isn't he? Uh, yes, because then the and other he's guy... he's dragged away. Yep. And his, yeah, uh-huh. his, his, his brother, not brother, whatever, comes and right. takes him away, yeah. So it, again, it's, it's a subtle little thing. It also sets up that they're in the area. Right. And that they yes. would be, and that it would make sense for them to be hiding from the authorities instead of going along with everyone. Well, it goes in with the genius of this film that every little thing is paid off and everything you think, oh, that was a throwaway, whatever. Nope. It's coming back and it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing that makes the like there are nihilistic endings and that's the thing the girl dies but i don't think it's nihilistic because what we found is we were following their mission we were wrapped up with their saving the girl but her mission was to save the boy mm-hmm. and she succeeds right yeah she does and even though our heroes don't succeed jeremy i think you made the point that you know huncio becomes a hero in her own right yeah, definitely. Yeah, and almost a better hero than the rest of her dysfunctional family. <laughs> like she's got it together most of the yeah. time, <laughs> where they're all just falling apart. Yeah, I that that is and that that's a great little throwaway bit when Namju gets the location and she runs in and she's got her bow and she's got it uh, uh, an arrow knocked and she's got it drawn and she's and the guy, thing just runs her over and knocks her into the little Whack. side pit and it's like shoot the damn arrow she waits too long you wait too, wait long. too long exactly that's why she got the bronze <laughs> you know it, it, it's 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 really funny me personally to watch the a film like the host and compare it to something like the film that came out two years later, Cloverfield. Mm. And Cloverfield, to me, ne- always rubbed me the wrong way because it was marketed like, here's a giant monster movie done right. right. And it's Uh-oh. like, and it's like, let's let's put a pa- let's press pause and understand that the giant monster movie was done right back in 1954. <laughs> Taking that out of the equation, the host is a giant monster movie done right. Yeah. This is a film that has respect for its audience. And respects for its subject matter, and is not a gimmick movie. And again, that's that's just my opinion. That's not a sanctioned opinion or anything. It's a fact. <laughs> it's a fact. <laughs> it's a fact. So yeah, so I said it did. This the oh, this, this was just so much fun to revisit this. And it's funny you say fun for a film that's so downbeat for most of it. <laughs> but there's those little bits, like you said, of, of humor and of humanity, and and uh, you know, Christopher, you hit the nail on the head. It, it's a downbeat ending, but it's not a nihilistic ending. It's it's uh, tragedy happens, and you know, one of the you know, after the tragedy, you have to pick up the pieces and and move on. 
you know, and I think that that's ultimately what the end of this is, is really about. It's okay. It's like, you know, that, that phase of my life is done. Things have changed. Now we have a new, I have a new phase of my life and I have to do, I have to do right by that. And by the, by my new, the new structure of my family, the new members of my family. And he's even really technically honoring his daughter by continuing her work. (laughs) Right. Which now that I think of it, like she was even probably the reason she's dead is she was protecting him even within the belly of the beast. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just to go back, I enjoyed Cloverfield. I didn't hear all the hype around it. I just thought it was a, I heard weird monster movie. Okay. But I enjoyed it. I will never watch it again. No. The host, like, is rewatchable, shareable, like, like, we've had all this discussion, and I can think of 20 things off the top of my head we didn't go through that's worth going through. Yeah. Oh, that, 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 and that's, to me, the difference between, I mean, again, and, and whether you like Cloverfield or not, I mean, that, again, that's a personal opinion. To me, it was built around the gimmick. Because if it was about the story, you don't shoot it on handheld. <laughs> and and I, mean, I mean that honestly. I mean, if it's about the story, if the story is what's the strong part of your film, then right. you shoot it in a traditional manner. You know? I mean, uh, you know, my, my brother is probably the biggest Blair Witch Project fan I've ever met. <laughs> and he'll be the first one to tell you that, you know, it's like, okay, well, it's still a gimmick. I mean, it's an incredibly well-executed gimmick when you look yeah. at the full depth and breadth of the marketing that they did for that and when they did it in the infancy of the World Wide Web. <laughs> but yeah. it's still a gimmick. Whereas a film like like we're talking about here with the host, if the, the strength of it is the story and the characters and the acting, well, then you don't have to shoot it as a gimmick, you know? Yeah, but you know it's 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 science fiction. You know you got to do things to stand out from the crowd. There's I think the only two genres that release more films than uh, science fiction in any given year are horror and pornography. So. <laughs> and so, sometimes horror pornography. You know, depending. Uh, on there you just, go. <laughs> I was just trying to think of what that would be called, like pornography. Pornography. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the uh, some people like the term torture porn, and to or me, yeah. I, I never liked that term because I've heard the, the Saw films called torture porn. It's like, I, yeah. chal- I challenge you to watch one of the sequels and follow the story if you haven't seen the ones before it. You shouldn't have, if, if, I mean, if you want to talk about like the Guinea Pig series or uh, what is it, Project 718 or some of those other, uh, those Japanese exploitation movies, yeah, <laughs> that works. Something where I've got to watch three films to understand the story of this one, that's that's not that doesn't fit that description to me. <laughs> Again, maybe I'm showing my bias in that, but <laughs> it's like when you know, and I get this a lot. I was like, well, you know, they they rebooted the Godzilla films in 1985. I was like, well, sort of. It's yeah. like they never really had that much continuity to begin with. <laughs> it's like they just said, hey, starting now, we're gonna give them continuity. <laughs> right, right, right. And that only lasted until 1994, anyway. But. Yeah. <laughs> so, guys, any like I said, any any final thoughts on uh, on the host? Not on the host, but the Blood Beach poster is fantastic. Isn't it fantastic? <laughs> <laughs> 
just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, you can't get to it. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll post the link to it, but it's the, the girl in the 80s bikini. <laughs> the incredibly 80s girl with her, uh, her rib cage, you can actually see. Drowning in the in the middle of the beach, being sucked down into the sand. This movie is exactly as ridiculous as you would think. Yep. <laughs> it almost looks like it should be a musical. Yes, because she's got the jazz jazz hands. Yeah, hands, up there. hands are out. And... <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, uh, have you ever? There's an Italian uh, film. It was directed by Michele Soavi. I want to say it was released in 1981 or 1982. Its title is mostly known in this country under the title of Stage Fright. And it's a film about, basically it's an acting troupe that they're, they're in this, they're in the studio and they are doing hardcore rehearsals for doing a musical about a, uh, you know, a, a crazed killer that wears this big owl hood mask, right? And the, the horror aspect is, of course, that the, the crazy guy breaks out of the asylum, he goes to the studio, puts on the mask, and is bumping them off one by one while they're all locked into the, the, uh, the, the, the auditorium, right? The very first scene in that is this really high affect, almost camp, super saturated in colors um, sequence of this prostitute, you know, putting out a cigarette and walking down the street and she stops in front of the alley and the alley is just pitch black behind her and we see the hands come up and grab her by the throat and it's it looks like the most over-the-top, overshot, way-too-artsy Italian horror film you've ever seen. And then suddenly it bursts out into a saxophone solo and the killer jumps up and starts dancing because it is a musical! <laughs> and it and it pulls back, the camera pulls back, and we see they're on the stage, and this is the play that they're rehearsing. Uh, so it's like, okay, th- it is high affect. It is ridiculous, because it's musical! You know? <laughs> and not one I of those... I've been that, contemplating that's... writing a kaiju musical. I could, I, I get behind that. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I pitched it to... Uh... A local opera house guy, and he never got back to me, so <laughs> I don't think he quite saw the concept the way I, I pitched it. But. See, now I'm now I'm picturing like a kaiju opera, so yeah. I've got Godzilla wearing the horn, the Valkyrie helmet with the, the armor <laughs> over his chest. And, it's not over till the fat monster sings. <laughs> oh man, that's, yes. Kaiju opera. What'd you expect, a happy ending? <laughs> All right, well, guys, I I, I think we've uh, if if you if you out there in Radio Land are not interested in watching the host after this discussion, I don't know what I can do for you because I think uh, <laughs> I think we put it over something fierce. Um, uh, the Even ho- with spoilers, it's going to be fantastic. Oh yeah, uh, the host is available on uh, DVD and Blu-ray here in the states. I just picked up the Blu-ray. Uh, it looks beautiful. Um, it, it's not not badly priced. I think it's like about fourteen bucks or so on Amazon. Go to twotruefreaks.com, click on the Amazon.com link, and uh, that'll help uh, the proceeds from that'll help keep the lights on here at uh, twotruefreaks.com. Uh, guys, I want to give you guys an opportunity to uh, do your, uh, your shameless plugs, as we love to do. So, uh, uh, what's where can we find you guys? What's coming up on the horizon? What new projects you got going on? Uh, what whatever kind of uh, you know. Uh, capitalism you want to discuss to warm the cockles of our cold dead hearts uh well you can find me and the podcast the beware of monsters podcast at bewareofmonsters.com um and for giant monster kaiju fans uh if you haven't read project nemesis there's four books 
in the series right now. The fifth and final book is coming out in October. There's also Apocalypse Machine, which has been my most well-received and best-selling kaiju book ever. Um, that came out just a few months ago. And uh, coming out in, I don't know, maybe nine days is my newest kaiju series uh, called Unity. Very and that's cool. a kaiju and giant robot. Oh, very nice, very nice. And I, I would also like to just take a brief mention and say that uh, I am really enjoying the comics adaption of Project Nemesis mm. from American Gothic Press. It's one of those things where, you know, you, um, and, and this happens anytime you get a book adapted into a comic, you've got an idea in your head of what the characters look like. Right. And then you see it on, uh, you know, you, you actually see it on the, on the comic. And it's one of those ones where, um, you know, Nemesis looks exactly the way that I pictured her in the book. Right. Um, some of the human characters look a little different, but I can then look at it as like, you know, I, I can I can get behind it. I can see it, you know, right. when I go back and look at it. So and, and I think we've got um, the adaption of uh, Island 731 coming out. Uh, yep. Is that coming out in the fall or, at this point? Or? I think issue one is coming out in August okay. and then it's off for a month in September and issue two will be October and then it should be monthly. Um, after that should be is is the key and uh well i think that was that was solicited a while ago and then it got re-solicited i know that was uh yeah there's been a lot of hiccups in terms of scheduling with the comic book and is uh, matt frank doing the art with that or no that's jeff, jeff zornow doing, Zorn doing the art oh that should be that should be great as well yeah. uh sounds good and uh christopher what about yourself well once again, go to Beware of Monsters, and if you're looking for me, you click on the podcast link, and we're, we often interview Jeremy, and um, if you enjoy hearing us talk about movies, every once in a while, Kane Gilmore will join us, and we'll break down films, but we also interview a lot of just creative people doing art that involves monsters, and we, we talk to Matt Frank and Jeff Zorno, um, we just talked to Jabbar, who's the special effects head for um, two seasons of Game of Thrones. Also, Doug Tenables, um, Jonathan Mayberry. There's just a ton of really great conversations, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And the director of He Never Died. Yes. <laughs> Jason. Oh, and apparently his next two movies, there's good movement on them. So I cannot wait. Nice. <laughs> Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I do advise everyone to check out Beware of Monsters. There's a reason I keep putting the promo in there. And uh, I like to, I like to uh, as I did in the last episode, I like to team up the Beware of Monsters promo with my brother's show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes. <laughs> I think they got good synergy together, you know. They, got that, they own their, their B roots, I think. You know, we've got, uh, you know, we've got our little corner here on Two True Freaks between... Uh, um, Bugs, Bots, and Babes, and the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror and Earth Destruction Directive, where we, you know, talk about genre stuff, which is a little ape, you know, out outside of the wheelhouse for some of our other mm. podcasters. But uh, it gives opportunities for me to talk to guys like you and uh, uh, Jeremy and you, Christopher. And I want to thank you both for coming on. This was a blast. Uh, I had a great time talking to the host and just uh, shooting the breeze with you guys. We'll have to do this again at uh, at some point in the future. And um, you know maybe I, maybe at some point we can come some I can come over on you guys' show as well just and uh, keep spreading the monster love. Nice. You know like like when Sanda helps Gyra before he realizes he's eating people and, <laughs> and spitting out their clothes, which was always hilarious. But <laughs> so uh, and for everybody out there, I hope you all enjoyed the show. Coming back next time, we'll be talking. I 
about something. I don't know. I don't got my schedule in front of me. Uh, I'm like Harry Doyle from Major League. Post game show is brought to you by Christ. I can't find it. The hell with it. It's like the post game show is brought to you by I can't find it. The hell with it. So, <laughs> which uh, is why it's important to subscribe. Yes. Go <laughs> definitely hit that RSS feed and you always get the new episode. Uh, but uh, again, remember you guys can uh, email the show at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. If you got any uh, questions for myself or Christopher or Jeremy, I'll go ahead and I'll forward them on to them if you want to email me with them. Uh, you can check me out on Facebook, Earth uh, as Earth Destruction as the first name, Directive as the last name. You can find me on Twitter. Handle was L Giacone. I always liked that was my user ID when I was a freshman at Clemson University, and I loved it because it made me sound like a South American dictator. <laughs> <laughs> he is El Giacone. You know. <laughs> Uh, so, everybody, thank you for listening, and come on back next time, and until then, keep them stomping. Keep them stomping? Yes. Sorry, I stepped on it. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> I, it's good. It's all good in the hood. <laughs>
You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.